you know, I was the first Baroness I'd ever met. I wasn't in yeah. that world. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you are listening to Premier Christian Radio. My name is Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity Magazine. And here on The Profile, we like to bring you a different interview each and every week with a well-known Christian, finding out more about their walk of faith, what God is doing in their life. And this week, we've got two special interviews for you. The first is with Baroness Cox and the second is with Paul Woolley from LICC. That's the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. The first interview you're going to hear today is conducted by my colleague Jemima Wright from Premier's Woman Alive magazine. Woman Alive features real women, real lives and real faith. It's published every single month and is the place to go for encouraging and inspiring Christian content that will also challenge you. If you want to take out a subscription to Woman Alive, why not head to their website where you can also find loads more content, womanalive.co.uk, because the interview you're about to hear was first published in that magazine. It is with Baroness Cox. You're going to find out loads of Baroness Cox's story in this conversation with Jemima Wright. So without any further ado, let's listen in now. I know your your father was a was a well known surgeon. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Where were you born and brought up? Well, I was born and brought up in London, uh, and I was there in the early stages of the war. I remember unexploded bomb fell in our garden, and so wartime was part of my early life. Did you grow up in a Christian family? I did. I grew up in a Christian family, and I was confirmed at the age of eleven. And I remember to this day uh, the confirmation text that was given us. And it's, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. I think that's Joshua 1 9. Yeah, I hang on to that because I'm afraid an awful lot of the time, but I have to hang on to that as my uh, confirmation message and mandate. So from school, you went into nursing. Is, was Correct. that what? And where did you train? What did you? I trained at the London Hospital down in the yeah. East End of London. Yeah. It's now called the Royal London. And uh, and I, I did my nursing training there. And then I worked as a staff nurse uh, at Edgeware General Hospital. And then I had the best nursing education anyone can have, which is six months as a patient with renal TB. Oh, my gosh. And, how did you get that? But when I was nursing in the 1950s, it would be 50, wouldn't it? Yes. Um, we, we nursed a lot of open TB. I was in charge of a women's TB ward on night duty. No treatment then, but by the time... I got a bit of TB, thank God, uh, the, the treatments were available. Could you continue working after you had TB? Not clinically. No. So that was when I did my degree in social sciences because I had a passion for trying to provide care, healthcare, in a much more human context. You know, in the days when I trained um, in the 50s, people would talk about the coronary in the second bed on the left. But that was a person with their own personality, their family, their community, their culture and so on. So I I studied sociology, but it was um, social psychology and other subjects along with it. And then um, I was in London University as an external student. It took five years, Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually I I graduated. And I only mention this because I was a part-time student and... um, I actually got a first. It was God's gift. Yeah. It also meant that um, I could uh, travel quickly up the academic ladder. Yeah. So what was the next step from there? Then I was um, uh, uh, to, uh, took a lecture, a post as lecturer of the Polytechnic of North London. And because of that first, I think I was very quickly appointed being head of department. Yeah. And that was a life-changing experience because, wow. uh, well, I, I just... 20 academic staff, 16 were communist father or further left. And their definition of education was not mine. Mine is freedom to pursue the truth within the canons of academic rigor. And theirs was really, really hard line, Marxism, communism, Leninism, um, and it's premised on lies and intimidation. And I just felt so sorry for the students because they did not get what they were paying for. Mm. I'll just give one example. There's plenty has been book written about it. But um, it was during one of the uh, occupations and it was premised on lies because it was going to be a new director and the Marxists didn't want him. 
So they used the old slogans, racist, fascist, racist, fascist. And there were very, very aggressive demonstrations of protests outside the college. And you had to really work your way through them, very tactile. And then when you got inside, there was a board which had what was decreed uh, to be taught for that day. It was nothing to do with what the students were studying. It was sort of Marxism in the third world and Marxism in the family. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching criminology at the time. They had a lovely group of criminology students. And they had a band of vigilantes that would come around and break up any class that wasn't teaching what was decreed for the day. So I said, well, you know, would you like a, a class? And they said, we're desperate. We've got London University exams in so many weeks' time. And I said, well, I'm very happy to, to teach it, but we may get broken up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, we don't mind. So we found a seminar room. I set myself across the door in a chair and started teaching. And about 25 minutes of bang on the door. And this group of vigilantes came around and they said, what's going on in here? And I said, this is a sociology, BSc sociology criminology seminar. It's what I am paid to teach, what these students are paid to study. And I teach them. And if uh, you want to stop me, you're going to have to knock me off my chair. And if I get hurt, I'll see you're personally liable. Bang the door shut, from as loud as I could from two inches. And they shouted through the door, we'll be back, back, dearie. And um, they did come back. But we had the hour, we had our our moral victory. And we did have an hour studying criminology. Yeah. And then they came back and they did not move my chair. And they subjected those students to the most vicious verbal abuse. It was all on lies. Because the director, who was about to be appointed, called racist fascist, He'd fought at the Battle of Arnhem against the Nazis. Mm. He'd seen many of his friends killed. He risked his own life fighting against fascism. Yeah. And as far as racism is concerned, he worked in northern Nigeria, northern Rhodesia in the oh, yeah. early days. And um, he was nearly kicked out from favoring, oh, not favoring, but supporting, doing all he could to help black students. So he was the opposite mm. of racism. Yeah. So built on lies. And um, the, there are so many stories I can't tell you now, but um, it, there was a, a blessing, a light at the end of the tunnel, because I was so dismayed at what was happening. And for the sake of the students and for the sake of truth and academic freedom, um, I felt well, we ought to get this publicized. I knew it was happening in other colleges and universities. So with two colleagues, one from physics and one from mathematics, we wrote a book documenting all this called The Rape of Reason, The Corruption of the Polytechnic of North London. And um, I was quite nervous going back to face the music the day it was due to be published. But the day before, I was getting kids ready for school and my late husband called up and said, Bernard Levin is on the phone. High school generation won't know Bernard Levin because we don't know how very well uh, respected he was. And he had three op-ed articles in the Times every week. And I never met him, but he was on the phone. He said, I've just read your book. I think it's the most important book of the future of democracy. I have read for 10 years. I'm going to cover it in tomorrow's times. Wow. So that was a lifesaver. And um, so that appeared, op-ed, and the heading was, in all its brutality, the making of an intellectual concentration camp. And then at the end, what was so amazing, he said, I think this is such an important book for the future of democracy. I'm going to devote my remaining two articles this week to discussing it. So he gave us a trilogy, which he'd only ever done before, for Mozart and Solzhenitsyn. So then how did you get from being a lecturer to Baroness? Well, um, I think that book probably was the pathway. <clears throat> because, I mean, Bernard Levin was so significant. And I think to have three articles written about it. And Margaret Thatcher was the PM at the time. <clears throat> I think she did have a real concern for academic freedom. And so I think that was probably the, yeah. the way God opened the door. And just to go back a bit, because you mentioned you're married and children. How did you meet your husband? As a student nurse on night duty oh. at the London Hospital. He was a junior doctor and I was first year student nurse and uh, met on night duty. And um, we met in July. And there are lots of funny stories I could tell you. We haven't got time now. Uh, tell me one, tell me one. Okay, well, one practical joke. Yeah. Um, well, I was in the women's TB ward, which is quite quiet um, at night when you settled everybody down because there's no acute illness going on in there. And um, ward sister used to come you know, quite regularly about 10 o'clock every night to do a ward round. 
And then it was this was an annex London Hospital at Brentwood, and it was a kind of building, well, I think it was an old army building, you could hear footsteps coming down the concrete floor between the wards. And um, one evening uh, after she'd been, I, um, Murray used to come quite regularly, and uh, we used to have some time together. My lunch hour, we used to go out in the garden and share poetry together. But we were sharing poetry in the rhubarb patch. But um, anyhow, I just thought this evening, I was very naughty, um, I got a huge bladder syringe full of water. And when I saw someone after Sister Bean, <clears throat> I saw someone coming in, thought it must be Murray. <clears throat> so I ejected this huge spout of water from this bladder syringe, and it, and it was Ward Sister. And they had, <laughs> and they had um, starch caps and starch yeah. tail hair caps. So all that just frizzled down into water. Did and she I, not try and sack you? Well, I guess I thought she would. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but actually, I played other jokes. Got, yeah. What was his yeah. name? My, my husband? Yeah. Murray. Murray. Murray, and obviously Cox. Yeah. Was he Scottish? No. Uh, I think it was just a family name. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely. Okay. I'll just say one other joke. Yeah. Because it, it's still in preliminary training school before we were in the wards. Yeah. And we had a very formidable head of the preliminary training school. Had three months there, resident. And um, one day, you we all breakfast, and then the head of the training school, quite formidable, said, um, student nurses, the matron of St. Thomas's is coming today, so I want you all to be absolutely perfect. Because there was great competition between St. Thomas's and London. St. Thomas's, obviously, Florence Nightingale and so on. London had quite a good track record of training people for mission work and that kind of thing. Mm. The great competition. So everyone best behaviour and turned up in a practical room with Mrs. Annie Smith, the model you used to have to work with. And we all sat around there with shiny shoes and starched caps and looking very demure. And uh, the head of the training school, Miss Daly, said, um, you know, student nurse Levin and student nurse Millen or something, will you put Mrs. Annie Brown into an appropriate position for being comfortable after a post-operative care for a cholecystectomy. So they got up and started moving and suddenly the silence was rendered. I had said, Mama, committed the image again. And we had, Mama. And I thought, I don't believe it. Uh, 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 the previous day for fun, I'd put a doll inside the But <laughs> One day they'd find the fun, you know, looking after it and find she was pregnant. But I had not realized it was a talking doll. <laughs> Oh <laughs> my god. Every time they moved, Mrs. Brown, he had mommy. So I did, I had to admit, I had to mistake, this has something to do with me. So I had to do a caesarean section. <laughs> that is so nice. of St. Thomas's and Miss Daly and the students. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was a little bit of a uh, challenge. I bet you brought some joy to all of them, though. So that's that was probably a good thing. <laughs> I, I thought they were going to sack me. But yeah, I know. I, you, I could imagine. I mean, if they were meaner, they could have. Yeah. Um, okay, so you you got the, you got TB. You, so you were nursing, you got TB. Then you did, um, you I became agree. a lecturer. And then what what year did you become baron? Was it, I think I've seen it's 1983 or something. It was a, it was a, it was a gap between leaving the Polytechnic of North London. Um, and then I moved on to be director of a nursing education research unit, London University. Oh. And it was while I was doing that, uh, this nursing research, uh, that I suddenly got this phone call. Wow. Uh, and uh, I just finished writing a book on sociology for nurses because I wanted to make available the essence of sociology, not getting too academic, but the, the really important things about sociology. Yeah. And then how that could relate to particular kinds of nursing, like care of the elderly or pediatric yeah. care or care of the dying. There's a lot in sociology you can use to humanise mm. that kind of case. I wrote this book on sociology for nurses, midwives and health visitors. It was, it was translated into Swedish. Oh, wow. Yeah. But anyway, I wrote that. And it was a lot of hard work. You used to give up five in the morning mm. to, to write the book. Because did you have kids? Did you have children at that time? I did. I had three kids. Yeah. What are their names yeah. and ages uh, now? Oh, I can't believe their ages now. <laughs> Robin, the oldest. Uh, I can't believe it. He's sixty-two. Wow. <laughs> Jonathan, number two. 
trained as a nurse at the London Hospital is 59. Wow. And Pippa, my daughter, trained as a nurse at the London Hospital, is 56. What's her name? Pippa. 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 Mm. Wonderful. And I so think you've got 10 grandchildren. I have indeed, yes. Yeah. Amazing. Five grandsons, five granddaughters. Oh, that's right. Um, Same as my mum. Perfect family planning. I take all the <laughs> So you had the children and you were getting them at five to write the book. That's right, dedication. That's right. The reason I wrote the book and you went for publication and um, the day it went to the publishers, I came back from work and I said to Murray, I'm absolutely exhausted. I'm going to stop doing all these extra things and just live the normal life. Mm-hmm. The wonderful, it lasted 22 hours. <laughs> because within the next day, uh, I had a phone call from Downing Street saying Mrs Thatcher would like to see me and they didn't tell me why I can understand that but that was when um, my life just changed because she asked me to be in the house of Lords. so my simple life lasted 22 hours and that's hilarious got her different <laughs> plans and yeah. I've heard you say that um you you felt that, that to say yes to it was was to be a voice for the voiceless yeah. um well I just felt when I was appointed Baroness you know, I, I always say that I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention, a baroness by astonishment. I still have still been coming from a shock. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I was the first baroness I'd ever met. I wasn't in that world. I thought well, it's obviously a huge privilege. So I asked God how I could use the privilege of being in the House of Lords. Yeah. And the answer came very clearly. It is a wonderful place to be a voice for those whose voices are not heard or yeah. those who don't have a voice. Yeah. And so that's why I've tried to use my role in the House of Lords in different contexts. I know that you've obviously been to Armenia many times and Poland and, I mean, Sudan and Nigeria and dangerous places. Um, can you give an example, or can you tell a story of a time where, where God has, I don't know, saved your life, but you've, you've, you've been scared or, or maybe not scared, but you felt him in that situation? Before I go into the war zones, I'm always nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, Always, I mean, be unnatural not to be. Yeah. And um, I say my prayers and I get my fit, what I call my faithless, fearful dread. And uh, between into Armenia and Karabakh in the early days of the war in the 1990s, I mean, flew in in helicopters under fire mm. and it was quite scary. Um, a huge admiration with helicopter pilots, they were really brave, but some, some were killed. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I had my fit of faithless, fearful dread. On Saturday afternoon, I didn't tell my kids anything. Went to church the next morning, and the gospel reading was he who is not prepared to leave husband, wife, family for my sake is not worthy to be my disciple. And, and then I think, I'm, I keep meaning to check it. After that, it said, I think, but he who does leave husband, wife, brother, sister for my sake. Um, or receive like, much more in this life and in the life to come. That's right, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so your, your children, because how how... You're putting yourself in dangerous situations. How did you kind of reconcile that with being a parent? Well, I waited until Pippa, my daughter, had to started nursing. So I didn't do it while they were kids. Yeah. I waited until they were, they'd all left home and were involved in their jobs or training. I usually didn't tell anyone until I got back. And now you've been doing this, is it 40 years? Almost. I was introduced to the house in 83. Yeah, wow. I believe it still seems unreal. Um, what's the situation that has caused the, maybe they're all the same because they're all such injustices, but what's the situation? Is there one that springs to mind that was so terrible that you, ha- you had an impact in, in changing how the world <laughs> the situation? I've often tried to do that, mm-hmm. but one of the painful things, I would say it's a double twist of the knife, that in so many places where we're working, um, which are... Um, war zones and people are really suffering and the British government for various reasons does not want to know and denies the seriousness of it. Yeah. I mean I'll just give one example of that and this is in the public records I've quoted on the floor of the house but I this was in the earlier war in Nagorno-Karabakh when Azerbaijan was trying to oust all the Armenians and um, um, yes I came back from one of my visits with photographs of children shredded by cluster bombs. I mean, heartbreaking, heartbreaking, awful. And against international law. So I took some photographs of these to a very senior person in the Foreign Office. 
I never say who it was, it was an unofficial briefing, but it was senior. And I showed these pictures, these awful photos, and I said, will the British government make representations to the government of Azerbaijan to stop dropping cluster bombs on civilians? It's against international law. The reply, no country has an interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interests. And I was just so shredded with grief, heartbreak. Um, but I think we see quite a lot of that happening <clears throat> quite a lot of time in some of the conflicts around the world. Yeah. The moment in Nigeria, as I'm sure you know, in thousands, literally thousands of Christians have been killed in northern Nigeria, and thousands and millions displaced. And um, by Boko Haram as initially there, and then the Islamist Fulani, not all Fulani are Islamists, but those who are Islamist uh, attacked mainly in the Middle Belt. ISIS is now in Nigeria, wow. as well, ISIS is West Africa province. Um, and it's horrendous. And they're not just massacres, I mean, it's sadly to death of machetes, but um, the <sighs> atrocities are horrendous. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, just one example, uh, talking to a lady mum, mm -hmm. and she had a six-year-old daughter, and she was, they, an Islamist attacked the village. She tried to run away with her little girl, but the village was surrounded, so she got caught. And they slashed her with a machete. Um, I saw the scars on her shoulder. And then they said, your little girl would like to suck her mother's finger. So they cut her finger off, her forefinger, got photographs of all this, I'm not making it up. Um, and she passed out. But when she woke up, her little daughter was lying dead next to her with her mother's finger stuck in her mouth. Oh. But you know, there's so many stories like that. And the British government says it's tit for tat. It's between Christian farmers and you know, Fulani herdsmen. Well, I'm sorry, you don't cut a baby's or child's finger off your, her mother and yeah. stick it in her mouth and kill the child. Yeah. You know, then there are so right. many atrocities. Yeah. But the British government we cannot get enough help, either political or practical. Middle Belt, which is quite a large area of Nigeria, as its name implies, um, I think it's got well over two million displaced, living in terrible conditions, and thousands are being killed. And yet, you know, we, we British government, as last time I examined this, doesn't give any aid to Middle Belt. Mm -hmm. Wow. We'll be in heart, we're very small, but we're trying to do what we can. Yeah, with, so heart, with, when did you establish heart? I think it's about 12 years ago. Okay. In desperation, because I wanted to provide both aid and advocacy to people who were off the radar screen and not reached by other aid or advocacy organizations, either for political reasons, because the governments wouldn't give permission and they can't give that permission. Doesn't mean we have to spend some of our time crossing borders a bit unofficially yeah. and illegally, but we need to be with the people. Or the other reason that they don't give permission to the big aid organization or the others don't go is for security reasons, because mm -hmm. they are usually war zones yeah. and very dangerous. But we always work with local partners and they are the real heroes and heroines. They yeah. live there and they multiply the little we give them in ways beyond anything we could ever, ever imagine. And just one example, going back to Armenia in the corner of Arabakh, the Soviet Union had no provision for people with disabilities. I know that because I did a lot of work with Russian orphans and those who were labeled oligophrenic and so on. And if you had a serious disability, you were kept out of sight. There was one uh, mum who took a child who wasn't desperately disabled out, and she got towed off by all the other mothers for upsetting their children. Mm. So there was any care for people with disabilities. At the end of the 1990s war in Karabakh, everything was destroyed. I and mean, they used to get 400 grad missiles a day pounding in on the little capital city, Stavanica. I mean, it was just pulverized. Mm -hmm. And we always ask our local partners what's their priority for help. And they needed everything. They needed rebuilding, they needed food, they needed medicine, they needed everything. But deeply civilized people, they said, well, our priority really is for help for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, they gave us a bombed out old building. There wasn't one that wasn't bombed out, hardly. Uh, and our inspirational director, Bardan Telebosian, works with a brilliant team of nurses. And they've turned that bombed out old building 
-hmm. into what's now internationally recognized as the center of excellence. It's brilliant. Oh and um, in, in um, the war zone. Mm. Wow. Uh, I mean, uh, but then, of course, there, there was this kind of semi-peace, and he developed it an amazing repertoire of um, different kinds of therapies. I mean, obviously, it's physio, but there's oh, art therapy, dance therapy, music therapy, sport therapy, but things you can you know, do when you're disabled. I mean, absolutely wonderful. And um, he's um, now, with, with the second war broke out, mm -hmm. um, we were really worried that the rehabilitation letter would be bombed. In that it was damaged, but it wasn't destroyed. He went back immediately. A lot of his staff did. And then they had a further 200 patients of Armenian soldiers who'd been wounded or mutilated. And so he, but he still kept his original patients. Wow. And it's, but it is, I mean, people come from other countries, come from Japan mm -hmm. to see it. it is a model of rehabilitation. I know your husband died a while ago. How many years ago was it? 1997. 97. How, how did you um, cope with the grief and how did that affect you? Well, it obviously um, uh, just shatters you. Mm. Um, it wasn't expected. Um, and in a way, I'm grateful, but I also have a deep regret. Um, he had uh, triple bypass, coronary bypass for three bypasses about 14 years previously, and they've been very successful. And he had 14 very good years, basically walking in the country together. And then he started getting cardiac pain again. And to cut a long story short, um, he needed further surgery. But the surgeon was extremely optimistic. He said, all your you know, vessels are in good shape. There should be no problem. And, um, you know, don't worry. So, um, you know, I just thought the next week I'd be looking after it. Yeah. And then, sorry, I never said goodbye to him. That's my big worry. Oh, yeah. But I suddenly thought next morning he was going down for surgery. So I phoned him and said, just let me know, I'm thinking and praying for you. And he said, I'm going down with all flags flying and I will come back with all flags flying. Mm. Which is the last word, which is lovely, because he actually died under anesthetic. So he never recovered. So I never had a chance to say goodbye to him. That's my regret. But my relief, to some extent, is... What a way to go. What a way to go, yes. <laughs> you know, compared to having a stroke and being you yeah. know, uh, awful, sort of immobilised for a long time or having serious cancer. Yeah, How old was he? He would have been 66. Okay, yeah. He just had his 66th birthday. Now I was about to have my 60th. Wow. Obviously we changed. Is there anything from your life that you feel God has taught you as a life lesson? Yeah, um, maybe there's, there's one or two things. Um, quite often, understandably, students or interns or people on visits uh, are worried about what they see and what they see is horrific. And um, you know, see people murdered, slaughtered, corpses, etc., etc. Burning buildings, we saw a massacre in Abbey between Sudan and South Sudan last January, mm. and bodies were still burning in the houses. I mean, it is horrific stuff. Yeah. But um, some people ask, understandably, you know, how do you believe in a God of love? Mm. And I remember the thought came to me. I was sitting outside my tent, well, obviously, South Sudan. We had living tents, so no buildings left in the heat. And I was just thinking about the challenge to faith and so on. And um, what might be the answer? And I said, I think this really came very strong. There is a reality of evil. Mm -hmm. And if one thinks the way Herod slaughtered all those baby boys after Jesus was born, um, and over history, we've seen killings and murders and it's going on today on a huge scale. There is a reality of evil. Mm -hmm. But we also have a God of love. And I thought they went on to the end of Jesus' life when Mary was at the foot of the cross and Jesus, her son, was dying in agony above her. And <clears throat> obviously there's nothing she could do to help him physically at all. She just had to witness his agony. But 
um, she was there. And I think that made a big difference. It was that time that Jesus said, you know, you're John's mother and you know, he'll, he'll be your son. Um, but she was there and it occurred to me perhaps one of the callings of a Christian mm. should be to be prepared to attend whatever Calvary's our Lord may call us to attend. To be there maybe feeling as hopeless and helpless as Mary must have felt, but at least to be there and be there in love. And um, I think that was a, a very strong message. Not easy, not easy at all, but you're there in love. Mm. I think that is so important. The other one um, is something which uh, occurred to me on another occasion. Um, I mean, I've found myself in such strange places. <laughs> and uh, I have a little sort of philosophy in life. But if God opens a door in front of you, it's not something that I imagine I contrived, I organized, but this door opens, then you ought to go through it because you have no idea what's on the other side. And if you do go through it, and then you see what's on the other side, uh, God may well open up new horizons and new opportunities for you. But I haven't said this to people, but um, you know, it may be scary, but God will always give you the resources you need for what he wants you to do. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio, and that was Jemima Wright in conversation with Baroness Cox. You can also read that interview in Premier Woman Alive. It's a fantastic magazine bringing you encouraging and inspiring content that will also challenge you. And there's loads of great content on their website as well, womanalive.co.uk. Go there now to read that interview with Baroness Cox and also check out the subscription offer where you can subscribe from just £1 a month. We'll be right back here on The Profile with my conversation with Paul Woolley from the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. Do you feel inner conflict between truth and lies, the way of Christianity and the way of the world? If so, it's time to live no lies. With huge spiritual insight, New York Times bestseller John Mark Comer guides us into recognizing and resisting the lies that rob us of peace and freedom. Live no lies. Yours free when you take out an annual subscription to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine, and that is the magazine that sponsors this show. I'm delighted to say my guest here on The Profile today is Paul Woolley. Paul is the Chief Executive at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, also known as LICC. He was formerly Deputy CEO at Bible Society, and he's also the founder of Theos, the think tank. Paul, welcome to the show. Sam, it's really good to see you, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, I know you've been involved in a variety of different Christian organisations over the years, but take me right back to the beginning and when you first became a Christian yourself. What happened? What's the story there? Uh, Well, I was born um, into a Christian family. I was born in Scotland and uh, born to parents who were serious about their Christian faith. Um, And I was formed in that environment. I am one of six children. Three of us were adopted and three of us uh, were natural children to my parents. Um, I was first in the family. And I think that experience of being part of that sort of family um, really helped me in that it, it gave me a practical demonstration of what love of God and love of neighbor looked like. Um, and that was that was real, and that that formed and and shaped me. Um, and also, I think it enabled me to see um, a, a bigger world. So I think it would have been very possible to have um, had I been um, only one child in the family, and uh, had had there not been the mixture, to have had a very safe, uh, very middle class, um, happy upbringing, no doubt. Um, but actually, um, the, the experience that I had enabled me to see that um, not everyone had had some of the privileges um, that, that that I had. Um, not not everyone was able to um, be in an environment where they had parents who loved them and were committed to them, and and that helped me as well. That that shaped me. That gave me 
um, perhaps a, a kind of bigger picture of, 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 of what the world really was like. And I, I'm grateful for that. And I'm still obviously massively formed by that. Many happy memories then of growing up in a Christian family or were there challenges as well? Definitely. They were they were happy memories. I, I would say my my childhood was happy and above all, it was secure. I, I always knew that I was loved. I was loved deeply by God. I always knew that. And I always knew that I was loved deeply by my parents. And um, that that didn't mean anything went. I mean, it really didn't. Um, it was um uh you know a, a tight ship in some ways and um but 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 a happy one and i i think it wasn't only the the experience i had of my immediate family or my parents um but it was my wider family and then friends beyond that as well that um as i think about it particularly into my kind of later childhood and into my teenage years um the influence of those who were committed to me who weren't part of my immediate family was massively significant and really shaped me and shaped my faith and shaped my character and and helped me um in in so many ways and again i think i'm grateful for, for that and now being in a situation where i'm married i'm married to ruth and we have four children um that's what i want for them that not only can we provide an environment that helps form them and enables them to flourish, but also that, that they come into contact with those outside our immediate family who um, similarly they can encourage, but they, they can be encouraged by. Yeah, it's like that phrase, isn't it? It takes a whole village to raise a child. It's like that in the church world, isn't it? When you want that sense of community, not just for yourself, but for your children as well. Yeah, I definitely think that's right. And um, there's wisdom in that proverb. I think in some ways it's harder. I think in some ways for all the, the, the rightness and the benefits of a commitment to safeguarding and um, a concern to, to ensure that children and others are in a safe environment, maybe uh, an implication of that also has been that it's created some distance and nervousness when it comes to adults and children. I think that's something that we have to be aware of and, and, and try and ensure that that, that isn't the case. Um, because certainly, as I say, as a child growing up, I'm so grateful for the other adults in our church setting who took an interest in me and took, took me kind of alongside them, really, and, and, and helped form me. Um, and so I would absolutely want that for our children. I think... For all the benefits of social media, for all the connectedness that we have, ultimately it's impossible to replace the deep community that comes through being present with others and living life with others in the flesh. Um, and, and of course, church can provide that sort of experience often in ways that you know, other places don't because often, and hopefully it's the case, in the context of gathered church, um, we live all of life uh, with others. Um, and that includes the, the highlights and the lowlights. It includes the periods of great joy, but also um, grief and suffering that we might experience. I know you're someone who enjoys a deep conversation and thinking deeply about God. You're actually sitting right now in front of a bookshelf that shows loads of amazing theological books uh, just behind you. But my question is really, how does your faith look different today compared to say as an undergraduate about to study theology you know what's changed since the time when you were a christian teenager and today yeah i I mean i was going to respond by saying god is bigger but of course god has not changed at all but i have and my faith is bigger my understanding of who god is and what life is and what being a disciple is is infinitely bigger is infinitely deeper. Um, one of my favourite quotes um, is probably overused, and it's possibly even slightly a misquote, but is from the theologian Irenaeus, who said, the glory of God is seen in a human being fully alive. In other words, as we are fully who God created us to be, as I am fully the Paul that God created us to be, God's glory is seen in that because that is God's purpose for me. And I think the biggest difference um, between my, um, well, the way that I've grown, and of course that continues to grow, but is this deeper, richer vision um, of who God is and what God's kingdom is like. Um, the fact that 
um, following Jesus, the fact that living life with God is not simply about um, eternal safety, eternal security, what happens beyond death, but our faith in God and in the person of Jesus is about the here and now. The fact that God is interested in me, in this world, and is committed to putting this world to rights. And the invitation to me, as with to all people, is to join God in that, to live all of life with God. And uh, to see that happen, to see that happen in the different spaces and places we live and work and show up. Um, that's a big vision. Um, uh, the, the Bible is about all of life. In some ways, the Bible isn't a religious book. It's, it's a book about life, about the, uh, the universe, about life, about everything. And that's what's so exciting. And I think that is something that continues to develop, but is a, it's certainly a change that, that I experienced. Um, interesting enough, the more that I got into uh, reading the Bible and the more that I got into prayer, both speaking and listening uh, to God. Um, the more that I studied theology, um, the bigger and better that became. Um, and that's been amazing. And I am grateful to those that have contributed to that. I mean, I mean, I think of some of the the theologians who have shaped me, um, people like Leslie Newbergen and Tom Wright and uh, Richard Borkham and John Goldingay, people like that. They have they have shaped me and and extended, enlarged my understanding of, of who God is. And and that's an amazing thing. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. Well, that brings us nicely on to the job that you now do, which is heading up the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. It was founded 40 years ago by John Stott, the well-known church leader. Billy Graham once referred to him as the most respected clergyman in the world. And actually here at Premier, we have a podcast entitled the Bible for Today with John Stott, and you can actually hear some of his sermons on that podcast. But as I say, LICC's been going 40 years, founded by John Stott, and some of what you've just described, really, in terms of how your own theology has changed, links quite closely to the vision and the mission of LICC. I know there's a phrase that's often used, whole life discipleship. Can you unpack that phrase a little bit for us, and how LICC fits into that picture of encouraging this concept of whole life discipleship? Yeah, I mean, it, it relates really to John Stott's vision, as you say, back in 1982, but prior to that as well, um, that the gospel um, deals with all of life. Um, and LICC was set up in order to help people think Christianly and relate the gospel to all of life. So there's no part of our lives that is outside the scope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Um, but the reality is often, although we might accept that in theory, in practice, we find that more difficult. So the majority of people, certainly the majority of people that I come into contact with, often don't feel that they're particularly envisioned or equipped to live as disciples of Jesus in their everyday lives. In other words, Monday to Saturday. Um, they, they appreciate the opportunity to gather together on a Sunday. And often that is significant in terms of their growth in their understanding of God and their love for God. But then trying to work out what that means for the, the time in between is, is hard. And so LICC is, is working with churches to help people integrate the good news of Jesus into everything. So whether it's our work um, or whether it's where we're spending most of our time when we're not at church, um, whether it's the culture of our housing estate or the culture of popular music, um, whatever it is, um, if we're serious about being a follower of Jesus, um, that impacts everything. And I think one of the things that we want to recover is recover a sense of how radical the call to discipleship is, um, that that is so um, comprehensive, it is so holistic, um, it really changes everything. It doesn't just change ourselves or the people that we interact with, but it changes the way we view the planet um, and how we see ourselves as inhabitants of this glorious but, but fragile planet. Um, every aspect of who we are is impacted by the good news of Jesus. And, and so that is a real emphasis of LICC. 
how is it possible that there's been that emphasis for such a long period of time and yet as you say the the message hasn't filtered through or at least if it has filtered through that a whole life matters to god churches for the most part still struggle to connect perhaps their sermon or their worship or the even the prayers connect that with where the average person in the congregation is today how is it possible that even if you agree in theory that our whole lives matter to god churches seem to struggle to get that message across you've been around for 40 years has nothing changed in that time well that's a very good question sam and you're right to pose that challenge and i would say that quite a few things have changed but there's still plenty to do so in terms of what's changed i would say that now the overwhelming majority of churches would not see any conflict between, for example, social action and personal evangelism. Um, and that was a key emphasis of Stott. Um, Stott wanted to argue that there wasn't this conflict, that both were part and parcel of a bigger gospel. And I think that's accepted today in a way that perhaps wasn't the case back in 1982. But when it comes then to people's personal understanding of an application of the gospel, I think often just the pressure of time and the pressure that church leaders are under means that this doesn't get the focus that perhaps it should do. Um, and so one of the things sometimes we encourage churches to do is, is to have a time where they encourage those within the church to think, what, what are they doing this time tomorrow? So if it's 10.30 on a Sunday morning, what are they doing at 10.30 on a Monday morning? And for them to be encouraged that that is as significant in God's kingdom as what they're doing on a Sunday morning. That the people that they're interacting with, um, that the work that they're undertaking, um, that the people that they're relating uh, to that the activity that they're engaged in that really matters to God and that that is um, not only if like a context for evangelism although of course that's important but that intrinsically matters to God and therefore if we're doing good work we're doing something that God has created us to do if we are using the opportunities that we have to further the cause of truth and justice, that's part of who God's created us to be. Um, so I think that's the opportunity, but you're absolutely right, Sam. It's also a challenge. Um, and uh, that I think is why it's, it's good that LICC exists today. If it didn't, um, I think we'd need to, to set it up. Um, but at the same time, I would want to be encouraged by some of the things that we've ha seen happen over the last 40 years. And I think once that message does get through, it's incredibly liberating for the average Christian to know that God cares about my whole life and not just what I do on a Sunday. Sometimes I've wondered if part of the problem is church leaders who, of course, are overworked, stressed. We've just published a feature in the most recent issue of the magazine about pastor burnout, which I know is a real issue. So I don't want to sound too critical. But nevertheless, those who are full time employed effectively by a church they're trying to keep that church going they're running alpha they're running small groups and they rely on volunteers and so a lot of what you might hear on a sunday is church leaders saying can you come and volunteer with this church project and help us and that might be vital but if all people hear from their church leader is effectively can you keep our ministries ticking over then it can give a false impression to the congregation who start to think well the, the god stuff that happens on a sunday really matters and and god's less interested in my day-to-day -day life in the week and sometimes i wonder if well meaning pastors can get sucked into that mindset that gives a false impression to their congregation about what actually matters to god yeah i think that's absolutely right and i've had a good example of this actually during the last couple of years with the pandemic of um, a church leader speaking to me and saying during the pandemic um particularly in the first few months they were part of a group of church leaders in their local community and they were going around the circle. Obviously, they were doing this virtually um, online, but they were asking each other, what are you doing during the pandemic? How are you responding? And so the first church leader says, well, this is an extraordinary opportunity for us. We've shifted all our uh, services online. We've started this new food bank. It's having a massive impact in the community. 
then the next person says, oh, well, we're doing this um, great new project with some of the most isolated people in our community, and it's having a phenomenal effect. Someone else says, you wouldn't believe how well Alpha is doing during this period of time. We've, we've seen more people doing Alpha. We've been able to remove both the physical and the psychological barriers because we've done that online. It really does work. It's amazing. And this church leader, hearing that, just felt crushed because they realized that they hadn't been in a position where they could initiate all of these new activities. But then they reflected on the fact that in their church, they had a social worker, they had a nurse who was working in intensive care, they had a number of people working in retail who were making sure that we didn't run out of some of the things that we were running out of. Um, they had teachers in their church who were there to provide education to children, including those who are amongst the most vulnerable in the community. And they realized that their church was at work and that this is what the life of a church looks like. And that liberated them. And I think if we can get this whole life message into churches right across the UK, it will not only liberate people, ordinary Christians, but it takes the pressure of church leaders. And the evidence we have is that churches grow because where people feel envisioned and empowered to live as disciples of Jesus in their everyday lives, that is so life-giving that it attracts people. So there are all sorts of really good reasons why having an emphasis on this sort of thing is important. Um, but of course, often getting to that point is difficult for precisely the reasons that you outlined. Paul, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that you are going on a 40-city tour as LICC next month. So tell us a little bit about what's happening and how people can get involved. Well, um, you've already mentioned, Sam, that LICC is 40. We were founded in 1982. And our conviction is that this whole life disciple making mission is as important as ever. Uh, so during the year ahead, um, and as we obviously emerge out of the pandemic, uh, we're going on a tour across cities, um, right across the UK. Um, we start off in London, and in the coming months, we'll be in Swindon, in Glasgow, in Nottingham, Belfast, Cardiff, Salford, Bristol. We've got other venues, other locations that are being announced in due course. But the intention is to share this vision, this whole life vision, and uh, for people to hear how this can transform the way we see our daily lives and work, and also how we might partner together to make a, a difference, a, a radical difference at this pivotal moment in our culture. I'm absolutely convinced this is a really significant moment for us culturally in all sorts of ways. There are immense challenges, but there are also great opportunities, and whole life discipleship, which is really the only sort of discipleship there is, um, is, is so core to all of that. So we would love uh, to see as many people who are able to attend um, in those places. And if people are interested in finding out more, they can have a look on our website and there are full details there. So you've been involved in a number of different Christian organisations. You've founded Theos, the think tank. You've been involved in Bible Society before coming to LICC. What's been the best day of your working life so far? And what's been the worst day? That is um, a brilliant and really difficult question, uh, Sam, to answer. Um, I've had, well, I've had lots of brilliant days. I've probably also had quite a few terrible days. I think when, when thinking about the brilliant, I think one of the best has to be the, the day that Theos was launched, um, because that was such an exciting initiative to be part of. It's very unusual to have the opportunity to create something from a blank sheet of paper, but that really was that opportunity. And I remember in the months and the weeks and the days before Theos launched, um, doing a lot of work to try and ensure that uh, the media took took notice of, of what of what we did. And um, I remember getting, I mean, this shows um, how long ago, it's about um, 15 years ago. Um, I remember getting up in the morning, going to the news agents, would you believe, to buy up 
um, all the papers or a copy of every paper in order to review the press coverage. And I remember opening up the press and um, I remember opening the Telegraph and the Times and the Guardian and a lot of the, the papers that we were seeking to, to get into and just being delighted about both the extent and the quality of the coverage about this new think tank that started up. And it, it just seemed that the, the sort of the hard work, the planning had made a difference. Um, we were so um, helped by so many people. And, you know, one of the great things was we always wanted Theos to um, not, not be confined uh, to any one political party or, or any one particular tribe or denomination. And, and, and the evidence was there that it that hadn't been. So in those early days, people like the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rome Williams, and Colonel Cormac Murphy O'Connor, who was the Colonel Archbishop of Westminster, um, they both, uh, they co-authored the, the foreword for the first report. And that kind of demonstrated something about the, the, the generous creedal orthodoxy of Theos. Um, and so that was one of the best days. And then one of the worst, well, I'll tell you one of the worst days, funnily enough, is also related to Theos, which I was um, just in the job, literally a day or two, and a meeting had been arranged with a, a pretty significant figure. Um, and it was um, at a hotel for breakfast. And... Um, I have never needed um, to, or I didn't think I'd ever needed to set an alarm to wake up in the morning. I always woke up at the kind of, you know, the, the same time. And therefore, there was never an issue about needing to do that. But bizarrely, on this day of this really important meeting that, where I was having a, a breakfast, um, I woke up um, because my phone went. And the phone was uh, one of the people that was at this meeting um, on the other end of the phone saying, you know, are you, are you coming? Um, and I looked at my watch and realized that I had slept in. And basically in the space of about 15 minutes, um, well, I had to, I had to wash and shave because I thought I've just got to kind of you know, look somewhat presentable um, through a suit on and then tried to get a taxi. I couldn't get one. So I had to run. So I arrived then at this meeting feeling really terrible, um, unprofessional, unprepared, and thought this is a complete disaster. Um, and uh, thankfully, um, everyone was incredibly generous. And I don't know to what extent they noticed um, just quite how disheveled I was, but that would be one of the worst, just because the sense of sort of inadequacy and embarrassment. How would you describe your calling? This amazing question. First and foremost, I'm called to to follow Jesus. Um, and and the truth of it, Sam, is that I almost wouldn't even I wouldn't expand on that. And I suppose that in a and the kind of reason for that, obviously, I say was somewhat expanding on it, is because it it sort of seems to me that that really is the only calling that we have. And then part of following Jesus is discerning what that means um, in any given situation. And often that means trying to use our common sense, but from the perspective that all the time we're seeking to acquire the mind of Christ. So I would say my calling is to follow Jesus, to seek to do that faithfully, that requires discernment in terms of understanding what that might mean. Um, but I also think, and I, th I think this is something that I've discovered more and more, that following Jesus is also about being fully human and life in all its fullness. Um, I've, I've been really challenged um, by reading people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who emphasizes in some ways the cost of discipleship, although his book that is um, entitled that, that was never the um, title in German, but it, it's what it's known as in English, this cost of discipleship. And I think we have to acknowledge that it can be a challenge to be a disciple of Jesus uh, in, in today's world and, and in any time. Um, but I am increasingly convinced that 
the cost of not following Jesus is infinitely greater. Um, I can't imagine life without Jesus. I'm simply not strong enough to deal with that. And Jesus is the one who invites me to experience life in all its fullness, which of course is not a life that is devoid of pain or grief, um, not at all, but it's to say that in those periods of pain and grief and suffering, um, God in the person of Jesus is with us and there is deep joy in that. And so that is my calling. My calling is to follow Jesus um, and to recognize that that's not, um, <laughs> that Jesus doesn't invite me just to follow him after death. Um, <laughs> Jesus invites me to follow him now. Yeah. And that's got some big implications. You mentioned that following Jesus, of course, is not always easy. But thinking back over the last few decades, even since LICC was founded 40 years ago, you could argue it's becoming harder culturally in the sense that arguably the gulf between what Christians with traditional views believe and the rest of society's beliefs especially those in our society who have influence in areas like politics and the media, that gulf seems to be getting bigger. It's got a lot bigger over the last 40 years. Even if you were to look back at John Stott's book, Issues Facing Christians Today, he wrote about abortion and, uh, and homosexuality. It seems increasingly like if you hold traditional views on those issues in today's society, it could actually be quite hard to have the kind of influence that you would encourage Christians to have. You would say Christians should be involved in politics. Someone might reply, well, what about someone like Tim Farron, who was involved in politics at a very high level, but when the media started to press on some of those more sensitive issues that Christians are at odds with the rest of society over, Tim Farron found that he couldn't actually be the leader of the Liberal Democrats anymore. How do you balance that? On the one hand, encouraging Christians to be involved in public life. On the other hand, understanding that if Christians hold traditional views, there might be areas of public life that are close to them or at least where areas where christians feel like the culture is actually hostile towards them because the culture of today is very different actually to the culture of the 70s 80s 90s and even the time when john stott wrote that book yeah i think that's a very fair analysis i think it's important to note that john stott did write um in that book issues facing christians today about issues to do with sexuality identity abortion, euthanasia, etc. Um, but he also wrote about issues to do with poverty. Uh, he wrote about the um, ecological and climate crisis. But it's much easier for Christians today to talk about those issues. It's very easy for a Christian to go on Twitter and say we should care about the environment. But if a Christian went on social media today and said something about traditional marriage, they could arguably be hounded out of public life for holding that view. That's the area. I wonder, how do you navigate that as a Christian? Yeah, and I think that's entirely fair because I was going to go on to say that you're also absolutely right that if you were to take a particular line, we've seen it a little bit recently in terms of issues around gender identity. Um, now, what's interesting there is you could argue that in fact that issue is in fact beginning to open things up which arguably is making the the context not necessarily easier but sort of more interesting again because there is um greater um disagreement um about you know what that might mean and the implications of it but i think you're right it's undoubtedly the case that if you were to take a traditional line on for example um issues of human sexuality that that today is considered completely unacceptable. It's considered politically unacceptable, culturally unacceptable. And the reality is that if you um, maintain that position and if you seek to articulate it, um, it is unlikely that you will progress politically. Um, and that is difficult and that is challenging. Um, I think what that reminds us of, though, is that... Um, the gospel um, in some ways is challenging. Well, the gospel in all ways is challenging. In some ways, it is deeply offensive because it profoundly challenges those that um, make claims around power. 
it, it profoundly challenges those in power and how they use power. Now, of course, that was as true in the first century as it is today. So in the first century, to make the claim that Jesus is Lord was implicitly to make the claim that Caesar wasn't. And that was unacceptable politically. And there was often a heavy price to pay for articulating the line that Jesus was Lord. It, it kind of brought you into direct conflict with the powers that be. And I would say that in some ways today, if you, you are to make particular truth claims, that brings you directly into conflict with the powers that be. And that requires courage and it requires resilience. It also requires wisdom in terms of working out how best to communicate uh, the gospel in public life. Um, but I would readily concede that even if that is done with great wisdom and creativity, there still can be that clash between truth claims, essentially. Um, but I suppose I would then want to follow through by saying, and it's sort of ever been thus, or in some ways it should be thus, because the claims of the gospel are so radical and they do challenge my own sense of self and my own sense of self-reliance. Um, and that can be deeply uncomfortable. Um, but I think, you know, again, we, we referred to Bonhoeffer earlier and, you know, he was in the context where it literally cost him his life. And therefore, I think inspired by people like that. Um, we um, should be involved and, and pray uh, for God's guidance in that and also seek to support those who are involved. I know from when I was working in Parliament, some of the most um, unkind letters that uh, the members of Parliament I worked with received were from Christians. Um, we've got to do better than that. Uh, we've, we, we've got to support those who are seeking, um, however um, fragilely, um, however imperfectly, um, to, to be disciples of Jesus in that environment. We need to, to stand with them and to support them and pray for them. Well, Paul, it's been great to chat today. If people want to find out more about the 40-city tour you're doing, the details are at licc.org.uk. But Paul Woolley from the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Sam. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, they've, um, they've been challenging questions, but I've really appreciated them. So thank you. Well, that was Paul Woolley from LICC speaking to me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And you have been listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. We'll see you same time, same place next week. And if you're listening to this on the podcast right now, we would so appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review wherever you found this because it helps other people to discover the show. Thank you so much. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.